Good morning. Before we begin, I would like to ask once again the Lord to help us and to be with us, to enable me to preach and to enable you to hear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we are now about to engage in something that you have ordained to bring people to your grace and that you have ordained the means of grace that the preaching of your word used by the power of your Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, we ask you now, open the hearts of people, minister to us, make clear these things. We ask it to all be done for the glory of Christ. Allow no one to see anyone else but Christ, your glory, and the leading of your spirit. So, Father, we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've never preached through the apocalypse before. This is my first attempt to do it. I've always been intimidated by the book. Uh, that's just me speaking honestly. I have, when I was a younger man, read through these pages and looked at some books, read some commentaries, went to school, was impressed by some of the people and what they said about the book. And I looked at it and I said to myself, these are very, very smart men because I read what they say about it and I don't see what they say. They must have eyes that I don't have. Then eventually after reading it, I said to myself, I don't see what they see because it's not there. And it took me a long time to understand that the passages that are in the book of the Apocalypse are explained by the Old Testament. And we must have a knowledge of the Old Testament to understand what these images mean. Now today, we're looking at vision number six out of seven. We have seen five visions already, and we're looking at number five. We'll have a, a little time of review because it's been two weeks, uh, two weeks since I've uh, talked to you about this. Last week I was in Maitland. It was a wonderful time. Thank you for allowing me to go. Uh, they're, they're a little bit bigger than we are in number, but, but you sing better. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to communicate and to have fellowship with other people. I really enjoyed going, going over there. Today, I want you to take home a doctrine that will be a consistent doctrine throughout this entire vision. And I'm not too sure how many messages I'm going to prepare on this, but I'll say that I'm covering the first six verses of chapter 17 today. And there are three chapters in this vision chapter 17, 18, and 19. And the doctrine I want you to take home is this, that Christ will be victorious in his battle over the salvation of our souls. Amen. Christ will be victorious Amen. over the battle of the salvation of our souls. Now, Christ alone is going to achieve this. Now, even though we are engaged in the battle, we must endure unto the end to be victorious. But it is Christ alone who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, and our victory must be seen by us as his mighty hand. When we are victorious, we have nowhere else to go but to God to thank him. Amen. Thank him, because we're going to see what we're up against in these chapters. We're going to see what Satan has put together to defeat the church and to bring down the name of Christ. 
So, in brief review, let's go over the other visions that we already have had seen. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to hear this over and over again so that you can have something in your mind to remember. And so, <clears throat> I want you to remember that each vision will basically go from the first advent to the second advent. From the time that Christ came the first time to the time that he will come again. Now, when we look at the events that are shown to the Apostle John, some things are spoken to him and some things are shown to him. And many times it's very interesting for us to hear what the words are and then to see what he sees. And many times they're the very same things, but they look a little bit different. And the example I always give is this. They say, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when he looked, he saw a lamb that had been slain. And they are the same. And so we need to understand that sometimes what is spoken is an interpretation of what is shown. And so an apocalyptic vision is something that must be interpreted. It is even shown to us in the text itself that what is seen must be spoken in a different way. And so it is our prayer that God allows us to understand these visions. Now, the first vision was contained in chapters 1 through 3. It has the perspective of being seen from the earth. It was the church in its spiritual warfare, and Christ was walking among the candlesticks, or walking among the churches. What a wonderful vision that was. We saw Christ himself. Feet of brass, his, sun, uh, his face shone like the sun. The second vision contained in chapters 4 through 7 was God sitting on his throne. Everything revolved around God. Everything was around this throne. Four and twenty elders, all the four beasts, everything around God. And then the Lamb came and he had the authority to take a scroll from the one who sat on that throne and it was sealed with seven seals and he was given the authority to do so because he was worthy to do so. And the scriptures teach us that he was worthy because he's the one that died. And so we can see that there is a relationship between what is who is worthy to open the seals and to perform these things and with the one who is able to save sinners and to do everything necessary to bring us before God. Everything. He is authenticated and he has the authority. Now anyone that has anything to do with IT will know that they can have an email that you can encrypt and you have to have the authority to have the authentication done. It's called encryption and so on. And so what we saw in this case is that Christ was given authority because he was authenticated and proven to be worthy to break those seals, open these seals and bring these things to pass. Now the third vision was chapters 8 through 11. They were the seven trumpets. Now this perspective we see from the earth where the wicked on the earth heard the trumpets, and they were warned and were engaged in judgment. And so we can see that they refused to repent, even after all of the trumpets, all of the warnings, but there were still judgments involved. But as we see, as we move from vision to vision, that we go from Christ being authorized to do things, we see the trumpets then warning, but also bringing judgments. But then the next vision, we see where we are able to understand the different type of warfares that are being done. Chapters 12 through 14 shows us how Satan and his helpers were aligned against us. There is a false trinity going on here, where you have the dragon 
and you have the false or the antichrist and then the false prophet. We'll look at that again today as we see Babylon the Great. But the aspects of salvation helps us to understand that our Christ is able to defeat because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will, will defeat the, the dragon and the Antichrist and the false prophet easily. Now, when I say easily, it's as easy as the omnipotent can do against anything. However, the means of grace is going to show us that we are in the battle and that we are going to be, that we will have many times our bloodshed for the glory of Christ, as we will see again today in this vision. The next vision, vision number five, chapters 15 through 16, we have the seven bowls of judgment. Carrying on just like the seven trumpets, these are more than just warnings, but these are angels pouring out the actual wrath of God upon the earth. And what we saw during the pouring out of the, of the wrath of God is that they were very similar to the utensils used in the, temp, uh, in the tabernacle and that these were filled with the blood of the sacrifices. And here we can also say that from the altar of incense, the prayers of God's people went out and then that brought the judgments of God upon this world because those judgments are in answer to those prayers. And that these judgments are completely, the, the world is completely unable to endure them. However, they are completely just. It was repeated over and over again that all of these judgments are not too much, but they're not they're not where they're not insufficient either. They are perfectly right. The entire bowl was emptied, but it was filled and it was completely what God required. Today we're looking at chapters 17 through 19. We'll only cover the first six verses, but it tells us how Christ will achieve victory and that there is a great seductress, uh, which is Babylon the Great, which is a city, but the prostitute is also a city. And this prostitute is trying to seduce the people of God away from her husband. And we have a temptress to do so. So today we will look at that. Chapters 17, by the way, tell us who the Babylon the Great is. Chapter 18 shows us the fall of Babylon. And chapter 19 shows us the victory that is in Christ. Lastly, there will be a seventh vision chapters 20 through 22, where the new heaven and the new earth are going to be shown to us. Now, even though these events fall between the first and the second advent, we have noticed that every vision has a different emphasis. It may be seen from a different perspective, perhaps from the earth, or perhaps from heaven, or perhaps from the view of the, uh, those who are being judged, or perhaps from a different view of Christ. But what we've also seen is that some of the events Many of them, in some visions, are right immediately after Christ was crucified. And then there was war in heaven. Sometimes the events happened throughout the entire age in equal amounts, such as the four horsemen of the apocalypse going throughout the entire age. Other times the events are going to be loaded near the back. This vision right now that we're looking at, we will see that Babylon has always been here. Babylon is here right now. But there'll come a time when Babylon falls. Now, that has not happened yet. You see, now, some of these events are going to be concentrated near the end. But they start at the beginning where Christ came, and they end when Christ comes back. 
that's important for us to realize. But these events we're looking, we will be looking at during this vision, many of them will happen in the future. That is, we will see this world fall by the hand of Christ. So, the vision that we're looking at, remember, it's concentrated on the goal that we understand that Christ will achieve the victory. Now, today we're going to look at Babylon, and she's going to look bad. She's going to look very powerful. She's going to look undefeatable. And yet, I want you to understand that Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. All right. There are two examples that will be given today. One is that Babylon is here right now. Next week we'll see that Babylon, Lord willing, has yet to fall, but will fall. Even given in the past tense. It's fallen, it's fallen. So, taking a look at our introduction, I want you to understand that the theme of Babylon can be seen where I want to show you the, the, the false trinity again and compare them to the real trinity. And that is this. The dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land will be pitted against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, both, that, that is, in this particular vision, we will also see Babylon will be the central theme. Babylon. Now, Babylon is going to be presented as a city, but it's also going to be presented as a woman. Now, these two images are very important. If you recall, when God consummates all things, New Jerusalem is going to come from heaven and come down. New Jerusalem, you know what that is? A city. Right now we have a city, which is Babylon. Two cities. The city that's made by man and the city that is made by God. Two different cities. We also have two women. One is a prostitute and the other is the bride of Christ. What a comparison and what a contrast, isn't there? One is a temptress. The other is awaiting her husband to come at the wedding. As we can see, these two things are in contrast to each other. So for now, let's read verses 1 through 6. We'll go over them one verse at a time. <clears throat> then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated, seated on many waters. And so the first thing I noticed is that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Isn't that interesting that God chose one of those angels? So, which angel was it? Was it the first angel, the second angel? I, can, I, I, would, I would submit this to you. That's a distinction that makes absolutely no difference. Sometimes we want to see the details before we see the big picture. And what we want to understand are the, is, is the big picture of this. And I'm not going to be able to tell you all the details. Sorry. I just, I'm not that man that I can see these things. I'm not a John Bunyan, but I am able to read the scriptures and see what is given to us because the angel will explain some of these things to us. So I want you to notice that he says, come and I will show you the great prostitute that is seated on, seated on many waters. But he said, this is what he said to me. Remember that what I said? That in the apocalypse, there will be words given and then there will be things to be seen. Words as opposed to what is seen. And so the vision concerns the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, why did God choose one of these angels? And I have a, a guess. 
Like I said before, there are times in which I can say, thus says the Lord, but other times I'll say, this is my opinion. Here comes one of my opinions. I believe that God chose one of these angels because this angel has intimate understanding of what it means to pour wrath out upon the world. He was there and involved in it. He was commissioned by God to bring wrath upon the world. He poured the judgments out. And so if anyone can explain this to John, one of these angels can. He says, let me show you the judgment that comes upon this woman. That's one of the reasons. We are told that this woman is a prostitute. Now, that's, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? You know, it's not like, well, she's from this country. She's this high, this tall, and this is the color of her hair. You can say all kinds of things about a woman. But if you want to start off a description of a, of a woman, by the first thing you have to say, you say, well, she's a prostitute. I would say that that's not a very good description. That is, it's not a good, it may be a good description, but a not a very good, uh, shall we say, reputation to have. And this woman happens to be seated. It says that she is seated on many waters. Now, later on, we're going to see that she's going to be seated also on a scarlet beast. And that she's also going to be seated on seven mountains. Well, she seems to be seated in quite a few places, right? But I want you to use the idea here that if you see a person in a vision who is seated, that seems to imply, here's another one of my opinions, that seems to imply that there is a ruling over or an influence over. And if she's seated upon many waters, and later on in verse 15, the angel tells us that the many waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so she seems to have influence and authority over many people, over many nations, over many uh, languages, and so on. But she's also going to be seated on a scarlet beast and on seven mountains. She seems to be a very influential prostitute. Now, it's not, you know, I have not seen prostitutes with so much power. However, this is an image that helps us to understand the type of enemy that we are up against. The type of image that John is providing that our enemy is very dangerous and the type of weapons that our enemy has is not just power, but also there is a seductive element that will entice our very nature, the fallen nature of man. So, going on to Revelation 17 verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers in the earth have become drunk. Now, what we see here is a little peek into the prostitute's black book, and we get to see who the clients are. We get to see that she has a business of the kings and all those who dwell on the earth. In other words, it's everyone. But she makes a distinction. First by, you know, John makes a distinction. That is the angel telling John. Makes, it, makes us to understand that first... She is sitting on, you know, many peoples, many nations, and that those kings are now seduced by her. And she has influence, and they are intoxicated with what she has to offer. And she herself is intoxicated with what she is giving them. And so these kings of this world are having authority over dominions of, uh, of nations, of cultures, and I would say they have great influence over society in general. 
because the bottom line will become this. Babylon is a society. Babylon is what John will call in his epistles the world. That's his name for it. Be not friends with the world. That is Babylon. So, the dwellers on the, the, dwellers on the earth. Now, this means the kings and everyone else. But notice how the angel describes them. They are the dwellers on the earth. They're not the sojourners. They're not the ones that are just passing through. No, this is their home. This is where they dwell. When they go home from work, they say, I'm at ease. This is the place where I want to be. This is my little kingdom. This is my, my life. When the world sees the world as their life, they are at home. And they like what they do. They are not, I'm going to put it delicately, they are not morally tricked into being who they are. They want to be who they are, and that's why they are guilty. So from that, the text describes that there is sexual immorality that is taking place between this prostitute and her clients. Now, this description has to do with what a prostitute does. But this is a spiritual problem. This is a spiritual immorality. When this temptress says, would you rather follow me than wait for your husband? There is the idea of spiritual adultery going on with the one who submits. Now, she is not married. She has no husband. But we have a husband, do we not? But she is the one that's tempting us. And she wants us to become infatuated with her, to become impressed with her, and to sip from the cup that she has. Now, it's a sad thing when God's people are enticed by this. It's even worse when they actually succumb to it. And so the kings and the dwellers of the earth have actually participated to the point where they have drunk from the cup to where they are now intoxicated with what's in the cup, the wine that's in the cup. Now, this drunkenness is not just spiritual darkness, but it is involved in activities that harm his, the, the Lord's church. Because we'll see that this cup is filled with abominations. Another way of saying that is that they are scandalous type of activities that involve the death of God's people. The blood of the saints of Jesus. And so when the world participates with Babylon, they are participating with one that says, if you want to be like me and with me, look at me how beautiful I am, then drink of my cup. You will then become participants with those who persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those today, even today, there are more Christians dying today than have ever died. Not too long ago, we had Christians lined up along the shores of, of North Africa and had their throats cut. We had people lined up in North Korea. They were all executed. We had people in China that are being sent to camps. All these things are being done by the world, by Babylon. Verse number three. <clears throat> And he carried me away in his spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
So here we have the angel saying, let me show you the prostitute. And then he carries him away in the spirit. And then John sees a woman sitting on a beast. Now, that's a little bit like saying, let me show you the line of the tribe of Judah. And then we look and see a lamb slain. Because there is no identification of who this woman is. But I believe that this woman is the prostitute. And now she is not sitting on many waters. She is sitting on a scarlet beast. And the beast that we saw back in chapter 12 is the beast that comes up out of the sea. And this beast is the Antichrist because they rule over the world. And this beast gives the false prophet all his power. In other words, this Babylon or this prostitute is now being supported by this beast and she is able to perform all of her activities with the support and the approving power and authority of the peoples of the world, of the governments, of the kings that also participate by drinking of her cup. So John is carried away into the wilderness. If you recall the last time we saw the world the word wilderness was back in one of our visions where we saw a woman, not this woman, another woman, give birth to a man-child. And that man-child was immediately caught up to heaven. And that was our Christ. But the woman herself was persecuted by the dragon. And she was persecuted and she fled out into the wilderness. Now we have Babylon in the wilderness, in a place like a desert, but she's sitting on many waters. She has all the water she needs. But she's still in a desert with nothing that will refresh her soul. All she has is the blood of the saints to drink. There's a time in which the wilderness can be seen by the Christian as a place where we have to sojourn. It's a place where we have to wander and say, one day we won't have to live in tents. One day our city will come. One day God will come back for us and we'll be able to live in the new Jerusalem. But until that happens, we must live in the wilderness with Babylon. If you recall, Abraham and Lot had a, had a dispute. They got too rich for each other. They had to go in different ways. One went to the city. The other went into the wilderness. Abraham went out where the wilderness was and Lot went to the city, Sodom. As you can see, there always seems to be a problem with cities. Not that I'm saying all cities are bad, but I'll say this. When it comes to human beings who want to say, I want to exalt myself above God, they will build their city above God's city. They will build their city above God. The wilderness is the place where the church can be kept safe, but the dragon pursues us there. We have a woman here riding upon a scarlet beast, there's no doubt that very same beast is the one that we read about before rising up from the sea in chapter 11. He also, that beast also had ten horns and seven heads. And we'll address that later next week. But I can't be for sure exactly what it is, but I can tell you some ideas. In addition here, we have Babylon being, is being described as Babylon the Great. If we read this, we would say that you know, in the future, in the next verse, we'll see how Babylon the Great we will see here a reference to we have the woman sitting upon a beast. Now, you may not make this connection, but the word beast, many times, if, well, let me put it this way. If you walked into a, to a horse barn and you saw these magnificent animals there, you might be even tempted to say, what a magnificent beast that is. Just full of muscle, just beautiful, 
and then you could ride on it. There's something about a horse in the, in the Old Testament time, and even 100 years ago, that made a warrior a mighty warrior. You put a warrior on top of a, uh, of a horse, and all of a sudden, his strength is multiplied. He's able to strike down at his enemies. He's able to overrun his enemies. Everything about him is fierce. And then when you put the prostitute on a beast, there's a little bit more to it. She is amplified. Everything she does now has authority. And she has power. And she's able to do things that she wouldn't have normally been able to do. But she has approval from the powers that be. And she's able to strike down at her enemies. Able to strike down at the church of God. And so, Babylon the Great, we now have a horse and his rider. Very much like Pharaoh. But we know what happened to the horse and his rider, don't we? They were drowned in the sea. The beast was full of blasphemous names. Not just full of blasphemies, but blasphemous names. Their titles. They were descriptions. If you want to understand the apocalypse, you have to understand the characters and then the titles that they had been given. And so the character we have here is a prostitute. A prostitute that's also described as a city. But she's riding on a scarlet beast who is full of blasphemous names, such as kings, princes, rulers, presidents, prime ministers, city councils, all types of positions and authority and power. And they are given their abilities to rule to our society that hates Christ. We have a wicked society in this world, and societies go on from generation to generation. It seems like Babylon is never really defeated. You know, uh, the city of Babylon, we can go back to the time in which Cain killed his brother, went out, had his son, and he made a name for himself, and one of his children, Nimrod, made a big name. He was a great hunter before the Lord and built a city called Babel. And it was at that time that this city became a, a challenge where they challenge God himself and say, we're going to build a city and we're going to rise ourselves up. It'll reach heaven. And what reaches heaven? The city itself? The tower itself? No, the name of those people. They want to rise up like they're God themselves. They want to become neighbors with God. They want to go over and knock on his door and say, hey, neighbor, I see you're a God. So am I. Why don't we sit around and play canasta sometime? Why don't we have, you know, fun games that gods do? We want to be equal with God. This is what man has always been like. They want to defeat God by being who he is. The beast is full of blasphemous names. Verse number four. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So here we see a description of the woman herself, arrayed in purple and scarlet. Now, just being described by colors is one thing, but I believe that the idea here is that she wore beautiful garments that were dyed purple, beautiful garments that were dyed scarlet. Now, if, if the scripture had said, and she was arrayed in white and blue, or purple, or, you know, you know, you know, orange and blue, we would right away say, well, what's going on? Did they just, are these the colors of their high school or something like that? What do they mean? But when we think of the word purple, we think of royalty. We think of the great dye that was only affordable by queens and kings. And when she puts that on, she is really saying, I sit like a queen. 
I sit with authority. And you can be my king for a day if you sip from my cup. The scarlet part. What is red in this world? What is red? Blood is red. And if she is displayed, and if she actually makes herself beautiful to the eyes of the world by being displayed by the blood that's in that cup, the blood of the martyrs of God, that she is proud of it, she's able to say, does it not make me look more beautiful, more appetizing to you? She has gold and jewels and pearls. All the things that draws the eyes of the flesh. All the things that says, look at the wealth. Look at the power. Look at the beauty. Everything about this woman, I just can't take my eyes off of her. And now remember the words that John had. He said, I greatly marveled. I greatly marveled. At this magnificent, shall I say magnificent? This great enemy of God that has been so successful from generation to generation, no matter what city she may represent. She may be New York. She may be Paris. She may be anything. But the people and the society change not. They are there opposing God. And the laws and the rulers are there to help. The main idea is that she is also there holding a golden cup. A cup filled with the brim with the outrageous scandals, scandals of her sexual immorality. Now, when you see this woman, envision her in your mind, sitting on this scarlet beast, and she has in her cup, that seems to be the center of the picture. She's arrayed in nice garments. She has all these beautiful jewels and everything else. But what she's offering is what's in the cup. This is the thing. A golden cup filled with what? Well, I'll say this. When God pours his wrath upon the world, it's filled with to the brim. And now she has her own cup. We would immediately think that there would be something in the cup as beautiful and as enticing as she is. And yet, what's inside would make the Christian go, you know, run away in, in horror and in tears. Because she is offering to the world a way to eliminate all of God's people. Either by seducing them away from her husband or by persecuting them with death. One of those two things. Either by enticement or by persecution. Verse number five. And on her forehead was written the name Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the earth abominations. We have here a title finally given to this woman. A woman that identifies who she is. Now her title is not mystery. This is something that the angel is saying. I have the mystery to show you. And the mystery is this. There is a prostitute that shall be judged by God. Now her title is this. Babylon the Great. Now Babylon the Great is a city. But she also has been given the title, Mother of Prostitutes and of Earth's Abominations. So the mystery is this. A mystery is not something that they have to figure out. It's not a novel where you have to say, I wonder who done it. It is a word that says, no one can figure this out unless God tells you. It is not, cannot be understood. You cannot find it out by your own scratching and own digging and own investigation. Unless God tells us, we won't know. And the angel says, 
God has told us. This is the mystery. This is the Babylon the Great. And so, this is what we have. Her title, Babylon the Great. I can remember in the book of Daniel, where the king Nebuchadnezzar first said these words in Daniel chapter 4. Let me tell you what he said. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Oh, man. Those are big words, aren't they? Well, you know what happened next, don't you? God took his sanity for seven years and he ate grass like an ox and his fingernails grew like an eagle's talons. And after seven years, God gave him his sanity back. And the first thing he said was, I was humbled by the Almighty. Now, what we want to understand is that this Babylon is not just that one city. Everyone in this world that thinks the way he does, the way Pharaoh does, the way Pharaoh would say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And look at me, my great city. I am just the greatest one. And they want to build their city and their society is against God, against Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, my goodness. Babylon the Great is the world, and the prostitute is the world. Now let me read you the, the words of our Apostle John in his first epistle, second chapter. We read this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whosoever does the will of God abides forever. As you can see, the great things that we could learn from the apocalypse, we can learn from other places too. The epistles and the New Testament has the truth of the apocalypse everywhere in it. But these are just apocalyptic visions that help us to see and help us to understand even more. And now the last verse. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her and I marveled greatly. Now, I would say, why did he marvel? Well, for one thing, the angel said this. I'm going to show you the judgment of the prostitute. And so far, he's seen nothing like that. He's only seen the great opposition, the great abilities of the prostitute, the great powers that she wields. But we'll see in chapter 18. Oh, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. So why did he see? What did he see? I want you to say this. I want you to see this. When John marveled, he marveled at the influence that she had over the entire world. He marveled that she was able to capture the hearts of so many. He marveled that the pleasures of this woman were to destroy God's people. That was the pleasure she offered. She was, he was not expecting all these things to see the greatness of this woman. When I say greatness, I'm talking about the fierce opposition that she had against God. He was expecting to see the judgment, but he will see that soon. He will see it soon. I only have one particular application, and truly not an application to, to give you on this. It's more of an illustration, more of an observation. We see that this woman presented in this vision was a prostitute designed by the devil to, to seduce God's people. And she is a war that wars against God's people. Together they make up a society. We have seen that this woman, who has been identified as 
Babylon has these things. But she is also given support by a wilderness and by a beast. But she has a plan. A plan to destroy God's people and a plan to persecute God's people. And so with this, I leave you with one small illustration. I'm not saying that this is a good book or a bad book, but I, when I read through this, it reminded me of a novel called A Tale of Two Cities. It's a book by Dickens, written in 1859. This particular novel talks about Paris during the French Revolution, during the Reign of Terror, when the common people banded together and they slaughtered their, their rulers, their royalty. It begins like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, you may not have read the book, but you know that. You've heard that before, haven't you? One of the most common beginnings of anybody. If you went to high school, you probably know that. When we see Babylon, like this Paris, they offer the best of times. But there's also the worst of times involved in it. But we live in a world where we can live in the best of times, even though Satan gives us the worst of times. And so I say that there is a new city of God, a new Jerusalem, and that there is a new city that we can look forward to. Let me close with this passage from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that had foundations whose designer and builder is God. The city of God, you're looking at its citizens here. We are ambassadors of Christ, and one day the city is coming. And we will not be defeated by Babylon. We will not be defeated by the great prostitute. Christ is coming. Our husband is coming. Let us not be enticed by the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Heavenly Father, we now ask that your word be sunk into our heart. That its seed might be planted and it might grow by the, by the strength of your, of your spirit. So Father, give us this grace that the word might be given to us where it can actually save our souls by believing the gospel but also it can keep us from the temptations it can keep us from the power of the devil it can enable us to resist the temptress it can enable us to live in this world but not be of it so father we pray these things for the glory of our christ in his name we pray amen amen and today